myself a little. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, on the way back, you know, we're coming out of the mountains, and so I send a picture. We, at lunchtime, I think we were still in the mountains. I send a picture of Lish and looking at the train window and all the mountains and the beautiful scenery of the mountains. And then dinner time, then I sent the next picture where we're sitting there. And it's just flat. There's a pancake out there. <laughs> Uh, had a good time. We would go out in the morning, find something to do, you know, maybe a hike or maybe uh, waterfalls or who knows what. And then uh, midway through the day, we just kind of plunk ourselves down, sit down and book and read and study. And I, I just had a great time. Just I was going through Luke, trying to close up a lot of loose ends, trying to figure out what I wasn't understanding. And just a really good time, just relaxing. It was good. <laughs> we had uh, so I want to share a little bit of some of the things I was thinking about from Luke chapter nine. We'll see where we go for the next few weeks. I know I've been working my way through Luke, progressing through it, uh, and we'll see if we keep on doing that or whether we'll just kind of go from place to place and pick out little lessons that I'm learning and appreciating there in Luke. So Luke chapter 9, uh, we've been here before, but I want to draw your attention to uh, something that I think, at least from my own personal experience, but I think believers struggle with, in today, especially in today's age, uh, what I'm calling entitlement, where in, in a thought of entitlement is where you think that you are, are, are we're in a, we think that we're in a place where we ought to get whatever we, you know, whatever we're wanting. That it's our right. It's something that we deserve. Uh, maybe something that's. Oh, I had a really good example at one point where I was. Oh, <laughs> we stopped at a little assembly. It was called a chapel, but it was closed. It was more of a hall than a chapel. We didn't know that at the time. So we come in there, and they informed us right away that they were at a closed assembly. So you sit down. And, uh, and being closed assembly means that if they don't know who you are or where you came from to the nth detail, you don't get to take part in the breaking of bread. You sit and watch as they pass things around. And I'm sitting there watching it pass around. And I was like, you kind of burned a little. You know, why shouldn't I be able to take part? I can go back home and I can take part. I fellowship with the Lord here. I fellowship with the Lord there. Why won't they have fellowship with me? That's the idea. I felt like I deserved to be in the place where I ought to have fellowship with them. That's kind of the idea of entitlement, that you feel like this is a place that you deserve. So that's what I'm uh, thinking about in regards to this chapter. So in verse 7 is, uh, and I'm kind of, kind of, you almost have to grab the context of the passage to really be able to get the the impact of what, Luke brings out here, so but we'll go through it very quickly. So the the uh, verse seven, we got this little story about Herod. Uh, this is Luke chapter nine, verse seven. Now Herod the tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John, that is John the Baptist, had risen from the dead, and some that. And by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, 
that John I've beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And as I thought about that, I realized that what Herod wanted to do, he was king of the area and put in place by the Romans. And he was had heard reports of this guy going about Israel, uh, different areas of uh, uh, Judah, Judea and uh, up northern parts, doing lots of stuff. And he wanted to see this guy. He wanted to grant him an audience. Herod was going to bring this man into his court, ask him some questions, watch a miracle or two or something like that, just see what this guy was all about. And when you think of a position of entitlement, there it is. I mean, Herod is a guy, he was king, he felt like it would be a real honor for him to take in this man from the countryside who was making such a big stir, grant him an audience, hear what he had to say, and give him some credibility because the king was giving him some attention. It's just kind of odd when you think about where this passage leads to and you see the Lord Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's more like Jesus should be granting Herod an audience. Who did Herod think he was anyhow to think that he would bestow some honor on Christ by bringing him into his court? Then the passage continues on. <clears throat> the apostles have been out teaching. They return. They go to a private area. But the crowds heard about it, and they followed him. And they, it says in verse 11 that they, he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. It's what he typically did with the crowds. He taught them the word of God, spoke to them of the kingdom of God. And the ones who were suffering, he healed them. And then the day went on, a long day, and, and it was a deserted place because that's where they were. Jesus and the disciples were trying to find some place private. And... Uh, they didn't have food, and so this is where the Lord then takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he feeds the 5,000 people. And they all ate and were filled. And then it says in verse 18 that it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him, and he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? Having just fed 5,000 people, they had heard his teaching of the kingdom of God, they had seen him healed. What was their thoughts? Who did they think he was? And so the disciples answered and said, well, some say John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others say one of the old prophets has risen again. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Because remember, the apostles have been out teaching the people. And he says, well, who have you? It's almost like he's asking them, what have you been telling them? Who have you been telling them who I am? And Peter answered and said, well, the Christ of God. So for some reason, the multitudes, even though they heard Jesus teaching, they saw his miracles and so forth, they preferred to believe that he was a prophet, maybe a great prophet, possibly John the Baptist risen from the dead, rather than believe that he was the Messiah, as he said he was, which is really odd. I mean, if you had a man come and he was teaching truths of God that were uh, things that you'd never thought of before, made the word of God come alive in ways and, and stirred your hopes up about the coming kingdom. And who could heal and could feed a whole crowd, do miracles. And if he said he was the Messiah, what right would you have as an individual to say, well, you know, you do a lot of good things, you're a great teacher and all the rest of that stuff, but you're a little bit off. You don't know who you are. You're not no Messiah. I mean, look at you. you got sandals on a regular robe like the rest of us. You're dusty. Yeah. Uh, great prophet, possibly, like oh, good old John the Baptist or Elijah, but Messiah, no, you're a little mistaken on that one. Too much time in the sun. You're ridiculous. 
but yet that's where the people put themselves. <clears throat> and because they would not receive the obvious truth that he was the Messiah, the Christ of God, the Lord Jesus told his disciples then to uh, tell this to no one, tell that reality that he is the Christ of God to no one. It was not his intent to try to gather a bunch of people around him so that he would rise in popularity, so that he could do whatever he wanted to, take the nation whichever direction he wanted to go. His intent was that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. He would not, he would not draw people after him because of his popularity and the hope that he placed before them of him being the Messiah. But he says in verse 23, he said to them, uh, if anyone desires to come after me, so he did want people to follow after him, but let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. And then he clarifies what he means by that, to deny yourself. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is, a, and is himself destroyed or lost? So what he's saying is, normally speaking, when we live this life, we are looking for some level of success. We want to grow up to be adults. We want to have a good family. We want to have a good retirement or whatever. And and you, you're counted as having a good life when you end up like Job with great wealth and a loving family and a long life and everything else like that. But that's all based on this earth. The, the, temp, the temporal things of this earth, they're physical, they're, they're real to our touch and everything. But he says, look, if you're going to follow after me, that and those ambitions of success in this world, uh, this on this earth, set them aside. Go for me with no, and set aside all your ambitions for any success in this earth. Well, who's going to follow a man like that? What motivation are you going to have to follow somebody who says set your entire life aside? And the motivation is found in the fact that he was going to suffer many things and be rejected by elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed because he would be dying for our sins. So the only people who would follow a man like that, who had that kind of demand, give up all earthly ambitions, were sinners, people who needed a savior. If you were in your sin and you found yourself as somebody who was in a horrible condition that you would never, ever be received by God because of the very uncleanness in your heart, this was the man that you would need. He would be the one that would provide a salvation and to make you accepted and make you whole before God. And that's the only reason why you would follow him. So he wanted to follow you, but not because of his power and his ability to heal and all the great things that he would do, but because he provided salvation for sinners. Now, it's at this point then that he, he takes the disciples up on top of the mountain and they watched uh, and they got a glimpse of what the kingdom of God would be like. They saw in verse 29 that as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening, so he was shimmering. It wasn't that light reflected off of him, but light emanated from him. I mean, a true glory shone from him. And there was two men that talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, or the, might be better translated, spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, 
this uh, in from the perspective of the earthly vision, this man, Jesus, would be one who would be rejected by the people of God, the children of Israel, and be crucified. <clears throat> but in the coming day, in the spiritual realm, he would be the one who would, the glory would come from him, and he would fellowship with his people. He would talk with them and discuss things with them. This is a, a small glimpse of what it would be like for having followed him to enter then into his kingdom, what life would be like. So it's not, I mean, he wants people to follow him, and he, and he calls them to give up a lot, to give up their entire life ambition, but he sets before them a promise of the coming kingdom and all the glories and the fellowship and being with him that are involved with that. Uh, so that the people that are going to follow Jesus are ones who need a savior, and ones who believe that promise that they, they look forward to a different realm of life other than this earthly realm. They're looking for something beyond this earth. They understand that this earth is temporal. Eventually this earth is going to be caved, fall apart, or it's going to be destroyed under the judgment of God. And so anything of the earth, it also will be destroyed. So they look for something that is internal, something that is in the spiritual realm. And so he sets that up then. That vision is given to us by Luke as we, we begin to see the reality of the situation of the Lord Jesus, that it's, it's not somebody who is looking to be uh, elevated above all other mankind while on this earth. He's not looking to be another Herod who is king above kings or looking to establish himself before the people and get them persuaded that he must be the Messiah so they all follow him because this is the Messiah and we've been looking for the Messiah forever and ever. He's not looking for status among people, uh, being elevated in that sense. He is looking for a following of people who need God's mercy. They're sinners. <clears throat> though he is king of kings and though he is the glorious one, the holy one, he is not... Uh, not looking to be one of the great ones on earth, is associating himself with sinners. Now, an interesting story happens. I mean, we get, I'm sure you remember as they're there, and you can see how Peter, I guess, might be worth thinking about Peter's mistake here on verse 33. He says, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And from Peter's mentality, Moses and Elijah were the two greatest prophets that Israel had ever had. There was nobody that compared to Moses. And Elijah, the power that he demonstrated, nobody compared to these men. So to say to Jesus, you are as great as these prophets, and we're going to have... He, in Peter's mind, he was elevating Jesus to the same level as Moses and Elijah, and he was going to have the three tabernacles. But as we think about the perspective of seeing Christ in the glory, we kind of realize that the Lord maybe chuckled inside himself and he said, Peter, how about I make you a tabernacle? Now a tabernacle is like a temp, a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place. It's not the permanent place. Peter, what if I made you a tabernacle? I would make you a tabernacle that would be so big you could explore it all your life and your kids could explore it and your grandkids could explore it and still not discover the extent of the tabernacle that I would make. 
And I wouldn't make it just a covering for you. I'd make it a big round ball and stick you on that as a little particle. And I would put it inside of a, a grand space with the sun and the stars around. That's the kind of tabernacle I'd make. What kind of tabernacle were you going to make for me? <laughs> Poor Peter. He had his perspective all twisted around. While they were in... It's like, Peter, who do you think you are to make a tabernacle for Jesus? This... I don't know, and he's like, is he entitled? Do you think he's entitled or what? To, he thinks, uh, but anyhow, the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son. There is none that compares to him. There is no second son named Elijah or Moses. This is he. So coming from that top mountaintop, then you come to verse 37. It happened on the next day when they'd come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. And suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus' response is most interesting. He says, Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was still coming, the demon threw him down, convulsed him, and then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the child, gave him back to his father. The response of the Lord Jesus is not, I mean, it's not what you would hope for when you come to the Lord Jesus and say, Lord, can you do such and such for me? And he says, you were a faithless and perverse generation. How long am I going to have to put up with you? That's not the response you're hoping for. You want him to. You want something a little more positive. And as we consider, I mean, you look at what the guy said. It doesn't seem like there's anything way out of line. He called him teacher, which is, you know, maybe he should call him Lord. But when you compare what he says to, say, in chapter seven. Different people that have come to that have come to the Lord asked him for healing. Uh, the first story in chapter seven is about a centurion. Summarized in verse two, there was a certain centurion servant who was dear to him, and he was sick and ready to die. And so, when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders, the Jews, to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. So similar situation. His servant is sick, and he wants him healed, just like this man's son was sick or had that demon, and, and he wanted him to heal. And the uh, the elders came to Jesus and they, they brought the request and they told him that this man, this centurion, yes, he was Roman, but he was deserving of Jesus' attention. They said in verse 5, he loves our nation. He has built us a synagogue. True, he's not a Jew, but he's cast his lot in with us. He deserves this. So give him what he asked for. And so Jesus went with them back to the centurion's house, but when he was not far from the house, centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, my servant will be healed. So everybody else thought this guy was worthy. But the guy himself said, 
I, my house as a centurion, which was grand and probably had pillars and who knows what else, is not a fit tabernacle for you to even enter into. Like he, this guy was not entitled, even though he was a Roman centurion. He saw himself, that's even the wrong way to put it, to say that he saw himself as lowly, because that implies kind of a false humility that he kind of put himself down. He saw things the way they were. Jesus, the Holy One from God, him, a man, a Roman, a sinner. That's the reality. Can this sinful man's house be fit for the Holy One from God to enter in? doesn't matter what you feel about the situation. The answer is no. Whether the guy felt good about himself or whether he felt bad about himself, it didn't really matter. The facts of the reality were there was his house was not grand enough to even be seen by the Holy One of God. That's just how things were. And so we see Jesus' response to this man in verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. This is the kind of response that you would, in your wildest dreams, would hope to find from the Lord Jesus. And there are a number of such stories of people that come to Jesus uh, Later on, say in chapter 16, you've got these lepers that are, or I'm sorry, 17, these lepers, they come to Jesus, 10 lepers, and they lifted up their voices and they said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And I've often wondered why I ask for mercy. It's because to use the word mercy, have mercy on me, what you're saying is, I find myself in a position where you have the right to kick me in the pants or backseat in the pants or something. You know, like I am, I am not in a position to ask you for anything for whatever reason, whether I'm a sinner or whether I've offended you or whether I've, you know, whatever. I am not, or maybe a wrong race or whatever, I'm not in a position where I can ask you anything. But I would ask, I would present this request before you and ask you to have mercy upon me and to grant my request. And the Lord did. And then there was a blind man uh, in chapter 18, and he, called, he approaches Jesus in the same way. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they told him to be quiet, and he shouted all louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. What had he ever done that required mercy? But that's, he recognized that Jesus, son of David, was the Messiah that had been promised from God, the the one that God had established a covenant to David about, this was the man that they had been looking for, and he had no place to ask that man anything. That was not his place. And so he asked, but he presented the request, knowing the goodness of this man, Jesus, and he asked for mercy. And so there's a number of people then that ask for mercy because they felt like, or their expression then indicates to us that these people uh, believed or saw, perhaps saw, that they have no place asking God for anything. This man here in chapter 9, 
We see no such attitude. I've come to you. You weren't around. You were up on a mountain someplace. But so I came to your disciples, and I know that they have been given the power to heal and that they were sent out to heal, that this was something that you commissioned them to do, and so I've come to them, and it didn't work. I believed with you, believed on you to the best of my ability. I, uh, I humbled myself. I approached them with all humility and everything else, and I treated them with respect and everything like that, and asked, and nothing. That's kind of the attitude that this guy has. I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. What's up with this? This is what really struck me then as somebody where that was entitled, that is, a, uh, has an attitude, I think, that at least I see it myself, and I think if we look, we'll see it in a lot of us uh, in Christianity, generally speaking, across the board. Because we are taught that when we pray before God, we need to find some promise that God has made, and we lay claim on that promise and say, okay, God, you have promised this. I'm going to lay claim on this promise. Now answer my request. And that's what this guy is doing. I know that you can heal. I know that you sent your disciples out to heal. And so I came and I implored them. And then when we don't get a request, we try to figure out, well, maybe I had the wrong faith. Or maybe, and it's very disappointing sometimes when God doesn't give us the request that we're looking for. Even though we've asked him in the best way that we know how, we've even grabbed hold, claimed the promise, thinking that he ought to answer us because we found the promise that he's given and we're laying claim to it and now we're looking for that to be answered. And it strikes me that that is an attitude of entitlement. I think you ought to do this because you've made the promise and I'm here, uh, one of the people that you've made the promise to, so the promise ought to be fulfilled. And it flies in the face of reality that God being God and us being who we are and all of our sin, we have no place to grab hold of any of God's promises and expect God to fulfill any of his promises for us because of who we are. And yet we do, all the time. Well, I want to uh, look at a couple of prayers that are noted in Scripture. The first one that comes to mind is in Daniel, and I think it's chapter 9. This is, this is a prayer that had plenty of opportunity to lay hold, to lay claim to promise of God. Uh, a lot of times when we as Christians lay hold of the promises of God, we grab promises that aren't necessarily made specifically to us. We just kind of see some kind of, sometimes we call them biblical principles or something like that, that we see God does these kinds of things, and so knowing that he does these kinds of things, then we're going to lay claim on that. And so it's kind of like we're taking hold of the promise second or third hand or something. Daniel has opportunity to lay hold on a promise that was made directly to him as part of the people of Israel. So starting in verse uh, 
we'll start verse 2. In the first year of, oh, sorry, Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books. And he's talking about the books of the prophets. I understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And you can look this up. You can see it, I think, in Second Chronicles. You'll see a reference of Jeremiah's prophecies and how Israel will be carried into captivity for 70 years until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. You can see it a couple times in the writings of Jeremiah himself, where God tells Israel that they will be carried out of the land for 70 years before they would be restored. These were promises from a prophet directly to the people of Israel. So if anybody has an opportunity to lay claim to a promise and say, oh God, I as, this is what I would expect Daniel to do, say, God, I uh, as one of your children, you the mighty God, the holy God, and the great mighty God fulfilling all of your promises, and I as one of your children of Abraham come before you to ask you to fulfill the promise that you have made through Jeremiah the prophet and to restore people back to their land. It seems kind of a reasonable prayer, a prayer that would be uh, looked upon by all my peers as being a great prayer of faith before God. Watch what Daniel prays. Then I set my face before the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So see if I did that, you guys would be really impressed because I'm really humbling myself before the Lord here. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him, with those who keep his commandments. See, now, if this was me praying, he'd be saying, ah, he's building up to, keeps his covenants. He's building up to this promise thing where he's going to lay claim to promise. But not Daniel. Daniel says, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of face, as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, to those near and those far off in all countries in which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Now you notice what Daniel is doing here. There is no hyperbole, no exaggeration here. He is stating the facts. This was exactly what Israel had done. They had disregarded the prophets. They had gone their own way. And maybe they didn't have shame on their face, but they certainly deserve shame on their face. And that's what he's saying. Now he states the facts of God as well. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants of prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He's acknowledging all the trouble that they've come into that it was well-deserved. It was a fulfillment of God's promise to them. 
that if they disobeyed God, they would suffer all these things. You see verse 12, and he confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us great disaster for under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. This is the, what he's saying here in verse 14, that the Lord has kept disaster in mind. It's, it uh, goes along with the, sometimes you'll see the, the, a phrase that says that God remembered this person or that he would not remember or that he visited this people or that he would not visit the people. And the idea is that uh, it's... <laughs> It's when you take something that has been kind of set aside for the time being, and now you're going to take that and bring it front and center. And what I mean by that is there was a time when my kids were uh, royally misbehaving, and uh, they were treating their mom with great disrespect. She was trying to get them to do school, and they were just not doing so well. And and uh, it was such a thing where Dad had to get involved and had to talk to these kids that were causing these problems. But I couldn't do it right away. We were, I don't know, some stuff was going on. I think we were going someplace or something. So I couldn't do it right away uh, because to do so would bring humiliation upon the kids. It would bring, you know, just the timing was not right. You had to. And so I waited until an opportune time came where the kids and me were by themselves. And then I remembered what they had done. I brought it back up. I visited the event, brought it to their attention and said, this was wrong. And that's what the Lord, so when Daniel here, he says, he has kept disaster in mind. This judgment that he brought upon us 70 years ago, he has not relented from that. He has not allowed, he's not allowed himself to forget it. He has not grown cold. It is not, you know, sometimes you're doing something and you start out and you're all kind of zeal and then you get distracted by something else and you never quite finish that project. He said, this one here, this disaster that God has brought upon us, he's kept it in mind. It's stayed in focus. This, he's brought it upon us because the Lord our God is righteous in all the works he does, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who has brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. Oh, Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant in a supplication. For the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes. See our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen, act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people that are called by your name. And then that's the end of the prayer as far as it's recorded for us.
There is no claim on the promise of your servant Jeremiah prophesied to us 70 years ago. But a statement of reality that we are sinners. And the only reason why we come before you in the corruption of our sins because you are a God of mercy. Daniel is not entitled. But he sees things clearly. And his prayer was recorded. And an angel showed up after he was done praying and spoke to him to give him comfort. Gabriel. I think that's an indication then that Daniel and his approach, the way that he came before the Lord was much appreciated by God. Another prayer in... uh, uh, I think it's Second Samuel. Chapter 7. This one's David. David has been lifted from the sheepfolds and placed in a position as king. He has brought the ark to Jerusalem and has spoken of building a temple. And uh, and he was told that he would not be allowed to build a temple, but his son would. And so in chapter 7, verse 12, God sent a message to him that would kind of jump in right in the middle. And Nathan the prophet brought this message to David. And right in the middle of the message, now in verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the plows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. So Nathan spoke these words to David. Now David's response is, this is a direct promise to David personally from God as far as the establishment of his kingdom and the establishment of his son upon the throne. And so now David, in verse 18, David went in and he sat before the Lord. I find it interesting that it mentions his position and you can picture it. He didn't come in before the Lord and stand, as was common in those days, to stand and pray before the Lord. But... And he didn't fall on his face, but it was like a man who would have, he he knew he was accepted by God and he knew he could have stood, but he was so overwhelmed, he just collapsed to the ground and sat as he spoke before God. It was kind of the imagery I get in my mind. And he said, who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God, for you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of men, O Lord God? And what he's saying is, 
to take a nobody and, and make a promise forever and ever for no reason at all. People don't do that kind of thing. Is this the manner of men? But this is what you have done. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God. There is none like you, nor is, there, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. So he's, you can see his perspective as he looks at God and he says, unmatched, unequaled, there's nobody even like you. And who is like your people, like Israel, one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, and to make himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people, who you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. He says, the people of God, you have taken them for yourself, which he had. This is exactly the case. Now, he turns to himself. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. Now you see how he claims the promise, but watch how he does it. I lost my play. Oh, so, so let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant be established forever. Or be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now, therefore, let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it, and with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. He says, as he claims this promise, so to speak, he says, the only reason why I am coming before you and presenting this request, I would never have the guts to do anything like this, except for you have stated it to me. The way he describes it to me presents a man who is not entitled. This is a man who... He sees God as God. He sees the people of God as the people of God. He sees himself as nobody. There is no place to ask God for such great blessing. But God has promised him. As I think about these men and think about their different requests and so forth, and how they're the ones that were entitled I think it's good for us to recognize the reality of who God is. All of his greatness, all of his holiness, all of his glory. And who we are, and all of our sin, and all of our rebellion, and all of our smallness. That we have no place to ask before God for anything. Except for that he is a merciful God. Except for that he has shown us grace. Except for that he himself has promised to us this I will give you. Why God 
like David, do you do anything like this for me? Who am I that you should ever even promise such things to to see the reality of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ, the reality of the greatness of God and all his glory, and the reality of who we are and come before him that way. And I think that's the lesson then that Luke brings before us. There's a couple other things that fall out of that. Immediately after Lord Jesus tells them about in chapter tells them about how he is going to be betrayed, there was a dispute among them as to which would be the greatest. They still struggled with entitlement. He said to them, Whoever receives a little child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among them will be great. If a child comes bearing the name of the Lord Jesus, because he bears that name, you would receive him. And I receive him, not just bring him in and give him a cookie and a glass of milk, but you bring him in to a place of honor. You receive him as a great man because he bears the name of the Lord Jesus, because the Lord Jesus is the great one. And then the following story, John says, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. He is he's of a separate group. He hasn't followed all of our teachings. Jesus says, do not forbid him. He who is not against us is on our side. He has attached himself to my name. Therefore, you treat him as a brother. The Lord Jesus is the great one. To keep that in view whenever we approach before God. Father, I just want to thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and his presentation of himself, the Son of God, the Holy One, coming in utter humility to, to bind himself to the lowest of the world, sinners, to provide for them salvation. We thank you for our Savior. And we ask that you would open our eyes to the realities and the greatness of his glory. In his name, amen.